BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, dear listeners. This is Kate Riga. I'm here to make a quick pitch that you consider becoming a TPM Prime member. TPM has used the member model for over a decade now, and our loyal members are the only reason we've been able to weather the turbulence of the media landscape and avoid the fate that has befallen so many other independent outlets. For $70, you get no paywall, fewer ads, access to the Hive member forum, a members-only newsletter, and more. For $140 a year, you get all of that, plus no ads at all. Without our members, there is no podcast, not to mention that I'm out of a job. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Riga. Last night, we finally kicked it off. We had the Iowa caucuses. We actually were no longer like, can't believe the 2024 presidential starts in only one year, or it's only a few months away. We're in it. We actually kicked it off last night. And as I think is not surprising, a certain degree of anticlimax to it, I'll, I'll be honest with you, the day of... You know, since since we had the holiday weekend and all this stuff, I had a moment on Monday where I heard some news coverage and I was like, wait, no, no, wait, what do you mean tonight? It's tomorrow, right? Because, you know, you kind of think of elections are supposed to be on Tuesdays and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm kind of in this business. Right. So so there's a there's a certain level of anticlimax to it. Obviously, we only had a contest on the Republican side because these early white people, rural states that that have dominated the, you know, dominated the game for basically about half a century, which is the entire history of the modern primary and caucus process where where it's determined by elections as opposed to sort of party leaders only been going on 50 years, but that's forever in these terms. They've been kicked to the curb by the Democrats. So there was no Democratic contest. There's no, there's not going to be an official one next week in New Hampshire, but you know, that's all kind of complicated. And in any case, look, Donald Trump won and he won a pretty commanding victory. He, the current results that we see are 51%. And then I think 21% for DeSantis, 19 and change for Nikki Haley. So pretty clear win. And look, as we have been saying, and I'll take credit here, I'm not above taking credit. Remember a year ago when everybody was saying how DeSantis, he's the guy, he's got the money. He's, you know, Trump's, Trump's getting a little old, you know, a little old both as a life form and as a as a political force i told you then trump's going to be the nominee and he's going to be the nominee now but here's the thing and i woke up today 
And I saw these headlines. I looked at the Times. I looked at TPM. I looked at all the different newspapers and a lot of headlines saying, you know, Trump blowout, you know, crushes his, Trump crushes his opponents, all that stuff. And uh, yeah, that's true. Normally, the winner of the Iowa caucuses wins with a plurality. It's pretty uncommon that they, they get an absolute majority, and he did, 51%. But I actually think this was a fairly lackluster result for him. And I don't think I'm just saying that to look for silver linings here or anything like that. Trump is running as the de facto incumbent. He literally says he he's, he didn't start stop being president. He actually says he he legitimately won the last election. But in the broader sense, he was just president. He's trying to get back into the White House. He has a a big part of his whole mantra is that he was cheated last time. That he was a legitimate winner. Unlike any contest that we have seen any time in our lives, unless you are super, super old. And when I mean super old, unless you were born maybe in the 1930s or earlier, when you lose the presidency, you're done. You don't come back for another shot at it. You, you're done. That's just how our system works. Trump has remained the dominant and exclusive leader of the Republican Party. And he's still absolutely going to be the nominee. But with all that, half the people, 49% of the people, voted for someone else. That's not nothing. That is not dominating. Next week, Joe Biden is going to be nominally in a race with Dean Phillips. But critically, Joe Biden isn't even on the ballot. People have to write in his name. I'm sure Phillips is going to get at least 20%. It's a kind of New Hampshire's kind of a quirky kind of state. You're going to have a lot of people coming in who are not Democrats, who are blah, 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 blah. If Joe Biden wins with 51%, people will say, fuck, that's not great. And it won't be great because he's the incumbent. He's the leader of the party. So this is not a strong showing. Now, of course, you can look at it from another direction and say he beat both of the nominal challengers by 30% or more. That's pretty solid. But again, what what standard are we looking at this from? He's the de facto incumbent. He's the leader of the party. Getting 51% is enough, but it's not great. It's not great. And and we've got to figure that into the calculus. This isn't just, you know, he deserves a few rough press cycles as people sort of digest, why, why didn't he do better? I mean, he should. And again, he doesn't seem to be getting that yet because most, most reporters seem to be going along with this idea that it was like this you know, crushing victory, which, which it wasn't. But we've got to figure that into what does this mean for the general election? I think what it means, what it tells us is that this isn't a very enthused Republican Party. And it's certainly not a Republican Party that's real united behind Donald Trump. It's dominated by Donald Trump. And that's not the same thing. The other thing about this result is that there was, I believe, around 190,000 people showed up to caucus in 2016, the last contested Iowa caucus. Last night, it was about 110. Now, it was very cold last night in, in Iowa, but 
It's as cold as fuck in Iowa. It always is. They're used to it. That's not that big a deal. The bigger deal is that if you are an Iowa Republican, you pretty much knew that Donald Trump was going to win the caucus and you pretty much know he's going to be the nominee and that's a major disincentive to showing up. So that's a lot of it right there. It was obviously very contested in 2016, but that's not the entire explanation. If a party is really gunned up and motivated and excited, that's another driver of turnout. And you didn't have that. And what I think this tells you is that this result is consistent with the elections that we have seen over the last year, year and a quarter or something like that, in which Republicans have had not great turnout and also not great results. I mean, it's consistent with all this. It's consistent with with losing a lot of by-elections. It's consistent with having meh turnout. So that's a little different than I would have figured. You know, generally speaking, when you have a when you have an election, when you have a primary and you've got one guy who's like 55% and someone else is at like 15%. That 55% turns into 65% or 70%. It doesn't stay at 50. So that is something to keep in mind. So we're going we're gonna to get into looking over the entrails, maybe literally in this case, of the other challengers. We're going to look, look at the desiccated carcass of Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Who dropped out last night, you know, tree falling in a forest and all that, but he's out. So that, you know, kind of tightens things a little bit. So let's get into it. Kate, second second show of the of the year. What'd you think? What'd you make of last night? Yeah. So I kind of have ended up exactly where you did. And the two points you made were my personal biggest takeaways. It's like you say that Trump is running as an incumbent, right? That's like his whole, or he's doing this hybrid challenger incumbent thing where he gets all the benefits of incumbency except for, you know, the built-in downsides, right? Which is that you're like directly accountable for kind of the state of America, no matter like how tenuous that connection is. Easier for people to kind of critique a track record after you've already been president, et cetera, et cetera. But in every other way, he's running as an incumbent. And it is crazy that his two closest competitors each finished around 20% in these caucuses. And I think you can kind of process how crazy that is if the situation was reversed, if it was Biden and you had, you know, Dean Phillips and like Marianne Williamson or whatever taking away 20% of his vote, that would be like blaring alarms like Ross Perot would be being talked about incessantly. You know, it'd be the kind of thing of people are unenthused about Biden. This is a crisis for his campaign. Like, look at all the interest in other people. And that doesn't translate to Trump because of the hat switching of the incumbent from challenger. So he gets kind of graded on a different curve. But I completely agree with you that. And I think it, it, in some ways, like to be fair to kind of reporters, the first blush reaction from last night was Trump won by a lot because that was the biggest question, right? If he didn't win by a lot, that would have been a huge deal and kind of upended all expectations and polling and would have had to completely rejigger how everyone's thinking about this 
this campaign. Yeah, um, and for clarity, it's not. And we both agree it's not a game changing result. It's not like we're thinking, "Wow, maybe it could be Ron, maybe it could right. be Nikki." It's just and and just to one other point that we in, in many ways we already ha- are having that conversation about Joe Biden. Oh, it's a divided party. Mm-hmm. People are unenthused. They want someone else. And we haven't actually had that result. Right. But in this case, you know, in any way. Yeah. So, and that was the first thing we were looking at last night, right? Like if he only won by 15 points or something, that would have, I mean, that would have been a seismic effect throughout the political world. That didn't happen. So then that's kind of the first cut. The second cut is, okay, who comes in second? Because it's kind of like, fantasy football politics at this point, but it like kind of sort of a little bit maybe matters in terms of if Haley had gotten second, there would be a universal call for DeSantis to drop out, like a universal impression that if you have any desire to kind of preserve your political future as a relatively young man in the game, you got to get out. There's there's no path for you. And instead, that kind of shook out in the like, perfectly worst way for both of them, which is it allows neither of them to claim the we're the obvious alternative to Trump argument. You've got DeSantis winning second barely Barely. after making a huge commitment time-wise, resource-wise, doing the classic like going to all 99 counties thing, barely squeaking by Haley, who really put no work into Iowa for the majority of it and then sort of more recently started spending heavily on TV ads and stuff. But her clear plan has been do as well as I can in Iowa and then I'm New Hampshire is high noon, right? That's where I'm going to make my stand. And instead, he got second. So it's like he's not totally dead yet, even though you can kind of tell his campaign's reaction to that by virtue of the fact they've spent all night kind of complaining about the very early call versus touting his his which you really know, his shouldn't have position. happened as much oh, as totally. anything good that anything bad that happens to Ron DeSantis is a good thing that should not happen and I don't know why I, I I'm unclear why the taboo on that was not honored last night yeah because you know Per AP's own kind of self-guidance, right? It's written in right there that they are supposed to have an eye to when the polls close, specifically to avoid dissuading voters from kind of predetermining what the outcome is. So that was very weird. And it did feel a little bit like the kind of mostly network and then AP like intra-competition to be the first to call it trumped like doing what is best for for election practices, particularly in a climate where a whole lot of people are pretty distrustful of, of both the media and election integrity. It felt like not yeah. the best time to get a little loosey-goosey and like see who can get the most eyeballs and page clicks, you know. So that gave DeSantis an overnight grievance, basically. And that was exactly. about the best they could about the best they could muster. Right. And then you had Haley, who I thought this was so funny. She This was in her, her speech last night where she said, you know, Iowa has shown us conclusively that this is a two-person race, which is like a pretty funny thing for the person in third <laughs> place to say. Um, but, you know, for, for her part, you know, this didn't give DeSantis the kind of resounding win that he needed. Um, and it didn't give Haley... What would have been a pretty compelling data point in terms of look how much momentum I'm gaining, right? Like I've knocked off DeSantis. I am the Trump alternative. I'm strongly poised in New Hampshire. Like this is just kind of another feather in my cap. Instead, it was, okay, like a close third, but 
third is third, <laughs> you know, like right, there's only right. so worked up you can get about that. No, I, um, I saw, I saw when on the live blog last night that I think, I think it was you that did the post kind of saying that this is like the, the, the the layout of the different results were sort of like perfect for Trump. If you set aside, right. you know, if he gets 70, you kind of say, Hey, what do you want it to be unanimous? Like a hundred percent or for Trump, but each of them got, you know, neither of them, you know, if, if it, if it had been 25 for Haley, 15 for DeSantis, you just say, dude, you staked everything on Iowa. And not only did you get crushed, you actually got crushed by the runner up. Like, dude, it's enough. Move along. But that both of them, it's sort of like when, I don't know, you, you text someone or maybe you're, you know, like a second date and they, they text you back, but it's sort of like, had a great time. You know, sort of like not enough to be like crushing, but not much better. Exactly. You know, um, and and so, yeah, both of them, neither of them, a totally indecisive result to the extent, I mean, except for the fact that obviously neither of them are going to be the nominee. I do, I do, I mean, we have no idea if the, we have no idea if any of these polls of New Hampshire mean anything because it is so hard to poll that state. There's not a lot of people. There's there's one pollster, ARG, that is actually based in the state and they do a lot of polling in the state. They're eh, not don't have the greatest reputation in recent in 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 recent years. I believe they had a poll out this morning that was like Trump and Haley at 40%, but who knows? And one of the big wild cards always in New Hampshire is that ability to you know, people can vote in either primary. Um, registered Democrats can't vote in the Republican one and vice versa. But undeclared voters who make up the plurality of the electorate, I believe it's like 40%, maybe a little higher, can vote in either one. Usually, you have one that is more contested than the other. So if you, ha you know, in that case, you kind of know which way it's going to swing. But in this case, is it is it conservative undeclareds who want to go in and vote for Dean Phillips just to kind of stick it to Biden? Or is it Democrats who maybe see I, – I, I do get the – I mean, maybe this is just my wishful thinking that I don't want to be you know, alone with my hot take about, about what those results mean. But I do think there's going to be a little of this in the next few days, kind of like – 51% was not that good. And if that's the case, you maybe have more Democrats who, who you know, de facto undeclared Democrats in New Hampshire saying, let's get in it and let's vote for Nikki and kind of, you know, kind of fuck with the Republicans. It's possible. And that, and that kind of, that unknown, which race 40% of the electorate is going to participate in basically means that all the polls are totally uncertain. Yeah, I think people are going to kind of consolidate around this take of Iowa as a real like revelation of Trump's weaknesses versus his strength. And I think part of it, which was weird when I was monitoring last night, people kept being like, is Trump going to get over 50%? And I was like, looking around, like, am I... Am I missing some kind of importance in that threshold? Like, does that mean something? And then it just seems to be something people kind of made up as like, if he gets over 50%, that's a strong showing and under 50% is not a strong showing based on like, not really anything. I think just the fact that you get a, a majority versus a plurality, I guess, which is kind of totally meaningless within the confines of this race. But, and the you know, another piece of it 
is we got a lot of those like kind of squishy little entrance poles, which I'm always a bit wary to put too much weight on because like even the kind of more the most rigorous poles have like all of these you know universe of issues that we've been talking about for multiple cycles now and entrance poles are an even kind of like more horoscopy lower level version of of real polling but you did have some very much not major not majorities but like some chunks of people who said that you know, if Trump was convicted, they would not think that he was he was fit to hold office. Um, and now that too, that got played very much by the big majorities who said he would be fit anyway, because that's obviously alarming. Yeah. But in a general election, we're talking about margins, right? We're talking about you just you can't anymore really afford to lose much of your own party and have any shot at winning, especially for someone like Trump, who's got negligible crossover appeal, like he's got to win his party by like North Korea levels to right, have a shot. Right. And there is as much as it's not enough to give her the nomination. There is this coalition that Haley has assembled behind her, which is, you know, all the parts of the Republican party that is not their rank and file core at this point, the college educated, you know, the, the never Trumpers, the not religious, like that kind of contingent, which has given her, you know, the quote unquote momentum that she has now, but also is a chunk of the of the party that does not like Trump. And that yeah. really always gets shouted down by the fact that a huge majority does like Trump because that's such an alarming thing to witness. But that the holdout chunk is super important. And even if it's not very important right now, it's going to be really important, you know, as soon as we get into the general. Yeah, no, I think th that's exactly right. And I, I saw those headlines too. And I think that what, what people ran with is like, you know, 66% of Republicans think it's totally cool if, if Trump is a convicted felon by November. And as you said, we're constantly in this context of looking at numbers and results and all these things through the through the spectrum of what would it be living in a sane world mm -hmm. versus what does it tell us living in the world that we have been living in since 2016 and yeah in a in a sane world would it affect your vote if your candidate was convicted of a series of felonies tied to trying to overthrow the government. Yeah, you'd think that would be a you know a bit of a deal breaker, but a, but obviously not since everybody knows he did it already, and even I wouldn't like. Why does it matter? Since he obviously did it, is it really going to be a game changer if they find twelve randos who agree that he did it? I, you know, he did it. So you know, this isn't like when like Bill Cosby who when I was a kid, everybody loved, everybody loved Bill Cosby. Like, you know, no one had a, ever had a bad thing to say about Bill Cosby, like, you know, kind of America's dad kind of thing. Then when we find out he's a serial rapist, well, that kind of spoiled it a bit, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> but again, we know he did it. So why does it matter if, you know, why, why does the conviction matter? But to your point, if 25% of Republicans think, yeah, that would be a deal, deal color. Well, you might not even, might as well not even hold the election. Because if that were true, and I don't think it is true, they'll come around. 25% of Republicans are not going to say, no, sorry, I'm voting for Joe Biden now. But it doesn't have to be 20%. If you have 5% of Republicans who say, I cannot vote for a convicted felon, and they vote for you know, whoever, whoever that 
heck no labels comes up with or or uh uh you know rfk jr or just don't show up that's a game changer that's biden wins then so it doesn't you know these things are these things are significant and and what would be significant in insane world just doesn't matter it doesn't matter so one thing i want to talk about is trump gave like a brief little victory speech before he hopped on a plane to go to New York to go to his his uh, trial with E. Jean Carroll to see how much money he has to pay her for for defaming her. He's um, like, that was the last time I raped someone. It was a long time ago. Right, Why exactly. are we still talking about it? Even when I was convicted of that, it was a year ago. Right. Exactly. It's old news. Um, so his speech was so, so strange, I thought, and such a clear product of consultantry um, because he went out there and immediately started off his speech with like acknowledgements, like the thank you to my family, my great wife, Melania, which even, you know, at that point I was like, what is this? I have like, I haven't heard him mention her since they were still like doing the stuff of they'd hold hands and then she would drop it as soon as they were like past the photographer (laughs) kind of stuff. But did she even did stay, has she moved back to Slovenia or wherever I've no, she's from? I have or no something? idea. Who knows? He yeah. talked about Baron, which I've never heard him do before. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he talked about Tiffany, like the the kind of the unpopular of his children. <laughs> it's all the unloved children, right? Yeah, there. yeah. And it was just so weird because from any other politician, that is as basic as it comes, right? That like, thanks to my family, thanks to our supporters, thanks to, you know, whatever, the, if the governor endorsed you, you think, like that kind of thing. And that's what Trump did. But it's so weird to have it coming from him because he never does that, right? Like his, the way that he does his kind of quote unquote thank yous is he likes to like cold call rando, huge Trump fans in the audience and be like, come up here, like say a few words and make these poor people like give an unscripted off the cuff speech about how great he is. <laughs> right. so he does not do the like, let me go through the rank and file of my loved ones and thank them for their support. And then he did some like, well, uh, you know, a little say, bit of can like, I say one? Okay. Can I say one thing though? Like, yeah. I, I don't think there is any way this can ever happen to me. But if I'm ever showing up at my rape trial, <laughs> I'm not going to be name checking my wife. It's just right. weird to like, like maybe don't mention your wife at this, at this in in this right before you're going to jet off to New York for this purpose. Yeah, yeah, but the 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 when you say it about it, he doesn't do that kind of normy thing, he's even made a brand out of it in as much right. as he does those tweets where he'll say happy thanksgiving especially to the haters <laughs> like the life. lovers Peter Struck and his right. lover love hate all this he he embraces it. He doesn't thank people, he attacks people. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just what he does. So he did that, which was weird. And then he did a little kind of like backhand condescending compliments of like DeSantis and Haley. Like we're all having a great time together, like strong battle for second kind of thing. Um, and, and went back to kind of being nice to Ramaswamy again after he did like some weird attacking of him. And then he did the whole like, this is about, you know, now it's time to come together, like the unity candidate thing. And it's just all so obviously a product of the people around him being like, you need to be 
normal more normie and then you can win but like if you come out here and do like like you say the fbi lovers bit the relitigation of 2020 (laughs) the ballot in the suitcase like all the that stuff that he does where he just like throws out phrases that are meaningful to people who are kind of like tracking the conspiracy theories with the red thread but the rest of us are like literally what are you talking about and then like you know gets onto water pressure and like windmills killing birds and all of a sudden you've been there for four hours and you're like what's going on it was a really it was a normie speech you know and to some degree also this was helped by the fact that i was watching cnn and they cut away from him after he did all the kind of like thanking stuff and before he got to you know his kind of like policy positions that always kind of play badly to a general audience um so so that made it a little that was a little bit of like a media hand in that but it it did freak me out a little bit because the idea of like a more disciplined Trump is obviously a scary one, right? It's the same dynamic of one we haven't seen him for a while. And then it seems like, I don't know how, but a lot of people in this country forget about what a psychopath he is until it's like reinforced over and over and over again. And this is kind of a version of that, but where he's taking more control, which is something he has been incapable of doing. I mean, honestly, I still think he's probably incapable of doing this for any kind of sustained period of time. Yeah. Yeah. But even the one shot is a little bit like, oh, okay, well, we haven't we haven't seen that from him for a while. You know, he's been kind of I think as he gets older and as he's not been surrounded by at least the trappings of the presidency, he's been letting loose even more than he was before, you know. Well, that was the thing is it's it's not just that we haven't seen it in a while. And one of our TPM alums, Benji uh, Sarlin, who, who's now with Semaphore, he tweeted last night about that speech that because Trump did get after, I guess, you know, after the ca- cameras stopped the live feed, he did get into the windmills and the, mm-hmm. and the 2020 and the suitcases and all this kind of stuff. And Benji noted that a lot of the AP, ABC, those kind of headlines were like, Trump, after victory, let's come together and bring unity to America. That that it wasn't, it also wasn't a great showing for those headline writers. But the other thing is that it's it's not just, and this is something that I think is so key and does not get factored into a lot that is going on right now, a lot of of press discussion and political discussion, it's not just that we haven't seen Trump in a long time, that that most of the public hasn't had what we had when he was president, which is just, you know, 24-7. He's a lot crazier than he was then. Now, he may not be a worse person. He may not be a crazier person. But the stuff he says is way crazier than the stuff he said in 2016, or frankly, any time during his presidency, it's stuff about, you know, poisoning the blood of America. You know, he's going to he's going to round up his opponents and, and J- it, it's a lot crazier. And, and if you're thinking like, oh, what about, you know, lock her up? No, it's a lot crazier. And, and I do think it is. I mean, I think there's a few different things. One is he's older. Yeah. Joe Biden's 80. Donald Trump's pushing 80. People Trump's get also, more, it's a lot older. Like 2016 was almost 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and frankly, I, I had gotten used to thinking like, you see Joe Biden when he's sworn in with Barack Obama in 2008. He's an old version of a young guy. And now he's an old guy. He's old. He's old. He he's, he's, uh, looks 80. I mean, 
lot of people are dead when they're 80. So, I mean, you know, look, 80 can look like a lot of things, but he looks old. And I've sort of, I'd sort of gotten used to thinking like Trump's insane, but he kind of, you, you can't say he's not kinetic, right? And does he look that much different? When I looked, he actually looks a lot different. But the point I'm making here is older people are more disinhibited. And, and most of our experience and an increasing amount of science says that that is, that is part of the aging process. It's not just that you're, you're like, I'm old. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I don't care what you say. I don't care how crazy I sound. It's, it's, it's a part of the aging process. So it's partly that he's older. But the other thing is he's a lot angrier. He was, he was having a ton of fun in 2016. He was enjoying every goddamn day of it. You just go back to that. Yes, he said terrible things. Yes, he channeled this sort of like politics of aggression. But him, he was having a great time. He stopped having a great time basically the moment he became president. And then he's got these investigations. Then he loses. He's got this endless string of ego injuries. Trump, I mean, this is, this is something that doesn't get talked about enough because there are certainly all sorts of continuities to his politics. But man, he was having the time of his life in 2016. You think back to those debates, he's making these kind of like, you know, wisecracking remarks. He's kind of telling these innuendos about how big his dick is. He's kind of like slipping a shiv to like Jeb. And Jeb's like, you see Jeb. And I mean, remember that low energy remark, right? The origin story of low energy. When he just says, with Jeb Bush standing there, you know what they say about Jeb? He's got low energy. <laughs> with all that low energy means and, and the double entendres and all this stuff. And Jeb, you just see like the blood just, just, just drain from his face where he knows his moment when he's in line to become president is all done. He was having a great time, but he was not angry. Not in the same way. He may have been characterologically angry, but he's having a great time. He's not having a great time. And he's angry. And he's angry because being president sucked. He's angry because he lost. And now he's angry because he very well could end up in prison. So that affects the things he says. And it makes a guy who was already totally bonkers sound a lot crazier. So you're right. That is going to be a, that will unquestionably be a big deal as the general public starts hearing a lot more from Donald Trump again. But how much they hear him is going to make a big difference. Yeah. And on this point of like, could he maintain this kind of normie facade? Of course he can't, right? Like back when he was younger and fresher and a little more mentally agile. Then too, you had all these people being like, if he would talk about X and not Y, he would fare much better with people outside his kind of hardcore base. And in, and at times he would faint in those directions. I mean, remember we would get those, God, those flurry of stories about the Trump pivot. Like it almost became a Democrats in disarray shorthand because reporters were so excited to write that story and he could never do it. I mean, he just, that is not to, to the extent that he has any kind of strategic thinking like that does not fit in with his worldview. Like his worldview is 
he has attained the success he's attained by being who he is. Like people like him. He's, you know, the brash asshole. I say it like it is. There is no room in that conception of self to slot in the little like consultant advice of maybe tone it down, maybe be a little less scary to people. So I don't think it's anything, it's sustainable at all. I That's a really interesting point you make about how the networks kind of only showed showed the nice bits and then it got crazy because that is actual journalistic malpractice that you would think we would kind of be past at this point having with with this kind of specific incident at least where we've like kind of litigated how much to show Trump on TV endlessly. But yeah, I mean, it's also, you know, I was almost expecting to wake up to like a barrage of angry Trump truth socials because Nikki kind of went after him a little bit in, in, in her speech. And isn't that the kind of thing that you could so see Trump doing, like getting so pissed off at his consultants being like, I came out and I was nice. And then she turned around and punched me in the face, like, you know, throwing hamburgers at walls kind of level of, of things. And that's only going to increase when she and DeSantis stay in the race, when in New Hampshire in particular, you know, the buzz is now all like, could she win on, could she pull off an upset victory in New Hampshire? Which for reasons we talked about last pod, even if she did, best case scenario, beat Trump in New Hampshire, she almost certainly doesn't have any meaningful paths to the nomination. Like you would still so much rather be him than her for does, with everything. doesn't even to have an, a meaningful path to winning her own state. Or any other state other than New Hampshire at all. (laughs) Um, But still, is the Trump we know someone who could take that information in his brain, realize that he could make some like disparaging remarks about New Hampshire not being MAGA enough or something and kind of move on safe in the knowledge that there is almost no chance she'll be able to replicate that performance in any other primary state? Like, of course not. You know, he'd go on a whole anger bender where he would just like be so mad that he lost this one place or that he didn't win this one place super decisively. And what is we think he'll be able to kind of restrain himself from going to the absolute lowest point against as particularly like a woman of color whose full name is, you know, kind of quote unquote exotic to to him and, and his base and everything. I mean, it would just run. That would be the real pivot, right? That They would finally get to write that story because it would be like unlike anything we've seen from him over the past decade that he's been a main character in our politics. More of this scintillating content after these messages. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Back to the show. You know, I'm reminded after the 2006 midterm where Democrats had like a a stomping election and the Republicans got drubbed. So the, like the next day or maybe the day after that, George W. Bush, who's the president at the time, comes out and everybody's, what's he going to say? And what he said is he's like, we took a thumping. <laughs> and it was brilliant because like everybody wants, all the reporters want to psychoanalyze there. Is he going to make excuses? Is he going to pretend it wasn't that bad? Is he going to pretend it wasn't about him? And in like three words, depending on how you parse his kind of like word salady 
composite words. He just said this one thing that was to his brand, folksy, and just said, yeah, we got our asses kicked. And everybody's like, oh, okay, I guess he... I guess he said it. I don't. Gonna, I don't know what I'm going to write now. <laughs> I can't. I can't psychoanalyze this. He just said we lost, and like, okay, I guess we lost. <laughs> Can you imagine Trump? Like, I mean, I'm not saying George W. Bush is brilliant, but he had his own brilliance. You don't get. You don't serve two terms as president without having kind of a knack, and that was just totally disarmed. It, you know, just very, very good. You can't ever imagine Trump ever doing that. Obviously. And the, here's the thing. It's not just that Trump characterologically cannot do that. The truth is, it is that crazy Trump that works for his base. It's not in spite of that. What they like is he's a crazy asshole mm-hmm. and he doesn't care what you people in New York and DC and all the places where, you know, Uh, your fancy apartments in the city cost so much. He doesn't care what you think. And he's just saying, fuck you constantly. And I love that. And you can can come at that in different directions and say, this is about deindustrialization or white backlash. (laughs) And it's probably all of those things, but they love that. So the second you start seeing Trump saying like, you know, uh, let's let's rise above and, and Nikki Haley, it was hard fought race, but I respect what you've done. And and let's pull his people are going to dude, what's wrong with you? Yeah, it's the same thing that people keep making the same argument that the reason that DeSantis's thesis didn't work like the that I'm Trump without the baggage is because he didn't really ever make the argument or, and certainly didn't make it consistently. And I think that's true. But I've always kind of thought that the basis of that argument is pretty flawed because I don't see any evidence that people want Trump without the baggage. Like you'll get occasional responses from people who are like, I don't like the tweets and stuff. Trump is the baggage. That's what they like is the baggage. Yeah. 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 He's exciting, right? He like upended the the normal order of things. He like embarrassed reporters. Like they like all that stuff. So yeah, I mean, it, it totally goes in line with what you're saying that a normie Trump would would he be more palatable to a general election audience? For sure. That is not who he is. That is some other kind of politician. And who knows what the future of that politician holds because they don't exist, you know, or maybe they do. And that's Ron DeSantis. And we've kind of seen how that's gone for him so far. Well, yeah. If you say like, I'm Trump without the baggage, you're saying I'm I am a 70 something obese man who really does not like immigration. I mean, that's Trump without the baggage. That really is. Because because what else are you going to say? Like, well, and I also, I really don't know about any other foreign policy issue. Like you said something about Obamacare. I have no idea what that is. And on NATO, what's in it for me? And what is it? What do those letters stand for? You know, that he is the baggage. He is aggression and fun. Yeah. And if you're at the, you know, at the combine on the weekend, right, kind of talking about wheat prices, what else do you got but aggression and fun? So Thank kind you very of much. looking forward now, we have New Hampshire next week. And like we said, that's the kind of drama there is that's where Haley is performing the best. It's the only place where Trump isn't polling ahead consistently by like 30 points. Right. Um, 
DeSantis is doing absolutely dismally in, in New Hampshire so badly that he, per reports, is going to head right to South Carolina and kind of like dip a toe back into New Hampshire a time or two. But he's for all intents and purposes, basically skipping the state. I mean, he's at like low single digits. As of yesterday, when I checked, he was like a point ahead of Ramaswamy and and they were like four and five percent of the vote in 538's kind of aggregate. Has there been a poll after Christie dropped out? Because when I the last poll I saw was when Christie was still in and that one or one of the polls had, you know, Trump in the 30s or 40s, Haley 10 points back, and then Christie was a 10 and DeSantis was a five. So that makes sense to go right to, you know, right to South Carolina. Um, right. And because that's it's not it's not a him state. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a straight shooter, mavericky. Right. You know, and, and if anything, I mean, it's not a pole driven weirdo, right? Who's he's, he's like, he's like kryptonite to New Hampshire. And like, obviously the problem with that strategy is that he's not doing well in South Carolina either, <laughs> um, which is kind of what you would hope for if you're going to skip over a whole state, you know, per 538 in South Carolina, Trump is at like 55, Haley's at 25 and DeSantis is back at 12. Not to mention, aside from South Carolina being much more kind of natural Trump country than New Hampshire is. It's also where Haley was governor. So there are really no built-in advantages left for DeSantis at that point. You know, now to to me with DeSantis, it was kind of like, if he came in third last night, I thought there was almost no way that he would stay in the race. It would just, we would see a jumping ship of donors, of staff. There would just, you know, as it is, there is seemingly no rude like i don't i don't know what jumping to south carolina does for him except that same thing that was happening when republicans were trying to pick a speaker and they couldn't find anyone and they just kept doing whatever they could to show the appearance of motion the appearance of forward momentum well, like it oh at we're least doing puts something out it it puts out his his do or die moment by another week right and exactly. more time you know more i mean you know maybe trump will die or maybe (laughs) maybe he'll be indicted again, or maybe who knows, like, it's at least, you know, and and, I mean, look, he's, he's done for. But when you're in those, I I have, I have been privy to some of those desperate conversations and campaigns start thinking all sorts of crazy scenarios. And one thing I do think they, I am, (laughs) I am almost sure that in their desperation, they are thinking this, let's say, you know, let's say, in New Hampshire, Haley wins 45% and Trump's at 35%. And sure, DeSantis is going to be like it too because he's DeSantis and he's not really, you know, uh, running there and all that kind of stuff. But then you say, then the DeSantis people can argue to the reporters, look, Trump's taken a fatal blow here, but we know Haley doesn't have the doesn't have the juice to get the job done. So this is a great result for Ron because now uh, Trump is on the ropes and I'm here as the logical person that it should come to. I mean, that's ridiculous, but people come up with a lot of ridiculous theories when they're in this when they're in this situation. And I will say that it's at least valid to the extent that if Haley really did beat him in some meaningful way in New Hampshire, that would finally at least launch some like, 
did we miss something here? Conversations, you know, did, did maybe Trump is not inevitable? And at that point, you know, heck, maybe Asa Hutchinson gets back in. Did I mean, did he? Some of these guys have never actually dropped out. He did drop out yesterday. Okay, fine. Oh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's it. Yesterday, he only dropped out yesterday. I mean, I mean, every I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast thought he dropped out four months ago. Yeah. Um, you know, not getting diced out of the um, debates has been yeah. the proxy for getting, you know, for dropping out. So we have had, you know, the Iowa winnowing, right? Like Ramaswamy is out now, whatever small single digit polling he will get, will all go to Trump. Asa is out. So, you know, the three people who like liked his kind of old school, upright, morally intact Republicanism are going to be disappointed. I really, I'm not sure who they'll vote for. Um, But so now it is, it's Trump, Haley and DeSantis. Like that's all that's left. Haley is already kind of building on that totally bizarre speech thing. There are now two people in this race. Like when, when I first heard that line, I was like, who are you talking? Are you talking about Trump and DeSantis? <laughs> like, I don't understand it. You just came in third. Um, but she is starting to make moves to kind of uh, try to shred up the narrative that it's like she and DeSantis are duking it out for a second. Um, that line was part of it. She said she's not doing any more debates if Trump isn't participating in them. So she is trying to position to, to take that mantle of like, I am the Trump alternative. And with New Hampshire, like at this moment, she has the stronger argument. Yeah, she's definitely got the stronger argument than, than DeSantis does. There's no yeah. question. So, I mean, that's kind of where we are now. The, the problem is it's just New Hampshire is going to be idiosyncratic. Like it'll probably be the site of the most primary excitement we're going to see the whole stretch um, in, in terms yeah, of. You genuinely don't know. Yeah. What what's going to happen? And the polls gen- have yeah. been all all over the place. Like I just, you know, I pulled up the the 538 tracker and the one you talked about that just came out that have them dead even 40 and 40. Um, right. That was from the 12th to the 15th and then the one right before that which is from Emerson College uh about a week prior to that has Trump up 16 points from Haley. I mean, they're really like swinging all over the place. I've seen ones that have them tied and I have, I've seen ones where his lead looks more like Iowa. So it does feel very kind of unsettled there. But again, it's like kind of how we open this conversation. There are always these multiple lenses to look at these contests. And the first and most widespread lens is going to be how did that specific contest go? Like how much did Trump beat these people by? And then the kind of knock on effect, the next lens you look at through is, okay, what next? And what's next is Haley's not going to have a path from there. I mean, if she does very well in New Hampshire, I think we can expect her to hang out for a lot longer. You know, that'll probably give her a lot of money. She's already kind of well-liked by the more Wall Street-y types. So, so she'll probably have the yeah, same. the billionaires power. like her. The billionaires yeah. like her. And with money, you can run for forever. Like, you don't even particularly need to do very well vote-wise. So I think we could expect that. I think it will probably turn up the volume on DeSantis to get out, even though no one's expecting him to do well. But it's one thing to expect it. It's another to have... A night where, you know, say he finishes in like the low single digits. I mean, how in the world do you spin that as uh, it doesn't matter, right? I'm going to I'm going to bounce back in South Carolina with my distant third place finish and then you'll see. <laughs> well, I think it's, you know, the, the what you what you what you do is you do you're not even in the state. And you actually you, you you to the extent that you comment about it, you comment about it 
in your rally in South Carolina where you say New Hampshire sucks and who cares? And I, I actually think that if if I'm recalling, and he's not the first one to have done this, this is what Joe Biden did in 2020, that mm. he, he, he basically didn't show up in New Hampshire because he was going to get crushed, which he did. And he put the best face on it by uh, on election night, being at a rally in South Carolina and saying, this is where it starts. This is, this is where, you know, this is where it starts. But to your point, he at least had the advantage that people did not think he was going to make it happen in it at that point. But it was at least true that everybody knew he would be much stronger in South Carolina. So the idea that he was saying, I'm not, you know, I haven't gotten started yet until we get to South Carolina was very plausible because we knew he was going to do well there. We knew it wasn't a surprise that that he did poorly in New Hampshire. But to your point, I mean, you know, to the extent that DeSantis is going to be like, hey, it starts in New Hampshire, it's going to start with him getting like crucified and, you know, Trump, Trump being at 55% and Haley being at 30% and his being at nine. So that just rings a little differently than what than what Biden had. Totally. And it was also a much easier argument for Biden slash Democrats to make that, you know, the South Carolina Democratic electorate does look very different than the New Hampshire and Iowa one. And that's because the Democratic base is not solely white people. So that is also going to be a harder you know, argument for DeSantis to kind of take a a, a page out of that book. Because, I mean, in what way is South Carolina significantly different than Iowa, at least, right? I mean, they're both like very evangelical. There's a big, you know, the Republican Party is like very, very MAGA there. I mean, it's yeah. not, it, it's a more homogenous party. So you don't get a state, you don't get the difference that you do for Democrats, which is like going from the all white little retail states to, you know, states where there are actual black people there, which is the backbone of the Democratic Party. Yeah, it's 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 funny. This reminds me of, you know, a few weeks ago, we had uh, we had a book, we had uh, Hunter Walker and uh, the um, the guy known on Twitter as as NYC Southpaw uh, with their book about the uh, 2020 the 2020 campaign and the sort of rapprochement between establishment and progressive Democrats in that state. And it, what it reminds me of one of the other paradoxical and weird advantages that sort of came together for Joe Biden was that massive snafu in Iowa when everything fell apart and there were yep. never any results. And so he could do uh, Lupe Lupin is his, is, his, uh, is, is his name. And there were no results. So he could do what we described in New Hampshire. But with Iowa, Sanders and uh, uh, Buttigieg were crestfallen and crushed. But for Biden, it was great because he, he and his campaign would say, oh, we'll never know who won. What a mess. Yeah, what a mess. I guess we'll never know. You know I so guess we'll as opposed to coming in, going first forevermore. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, and he didn't have to say like, OK, sure, I came in fifth place. But why do you you know, why does that tell you I'm not the front runner? Right. Exactly. It was, it was just it was it was a stroke of it was a real stroke of luck for Joe Biden, because, again, it allowed there was no result. New Hampshire was in his state. He crushed it in South Carolina. And then we had a, a global pandemic, which brought it all together for Joe. So as we're kind of looking ahead to these next contests and, you know, obviously covering them at TPM and stuff, just like just keep in your mind that 
two things can be true at the same time, which is Trump can, quote unquote, dominate Haley and DeSantis, right? Like he won Iowa by the biggest margin that the Iowa caucuses have ever been won. Like that can be true at the same time that an incumbent for all intents and purposes barely getting 50% when he is the supposed kind of king and messiah of his party, when half the other people are going for someone else, even in a big MAGA state, that that could be a glaring sign of weakness for Trump and that those signs of weaknesses don't get litigated for him the same way that they do for Biden. And that doesn't mean that they don't exist or that there aren't kind of data points to parse here that are pretty clearly indicated indicate that he is not this like perfect Teflon huge threat candidate. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. All right. So I think we're going to finish off just dipping a toe into what's going on in Congress right now. We are currently very close to that first deadline from the quote unquote laddered or, you know, step stooled CR from last time. Conditions are largely the same, right? Like Johnson is trying to kind of fend off mutiny from his right flank. It's, it's kind of similar to McCarthy. But what has been percolating in the background here is this big immigration deal. There was supposed to be a, there's a bipartisan, you know, quote unquote, like gang in the Senate that has been forming some kind of immigration deal that everyone can live with. And then that was kind of set up as a precursor to getting agreement on this spending stuff. And we are now at the point where I mean, they've got like a week, there's no chance they're going to pass appropriations bills, or you know, come anywhere close to passing all of them, which means we're almost certainly going to have another CR. Um, I think a March deadline is what has been floated, what seems most likely. But Josh, you want to kind of situate us with this immigration deal, which, which, you know, we keep having those posts about like, they've worked all weekend, you know, these, these hardworking little senators, and they've like come out with a deal, which is more than nominally bipartisan. And yet, Johnson, uh, pretty much rejected it on spec. <laughs> yeah, this is significant. They, as we know, I think everybody realizes that, you know, Republicans, it's their only issue, especially now that inflation has sort of ebbed. Immigration is their issue. It's always been their issue in the Trump era. They go down there, they tell all these lurid stories. But even with that, it's an issue. It, it is resonating beyond just the Republican base. And the, to the chagrin and anger of many Democrats, the National Democratic Party and the White House has sort of seen the writing on the wall that they have to do something, they have to address this, and will likely have to address it by moving in the Republican direction on a number of fronts. Not going to do the crazy stuff, but we'll move in that direction. Okay. So that was the basis of this working group in the Senate. Sort of what can the Democrats uh, agree to, to have, you know, to, to be able to say, look, people are upset about this and we are addressing it. Okay. So they came up with a bipartisan deal. I think the Republican leader on this is that guy Langford from uh, Oklahoma. And Johnson came out uh, over the weekend and basically said, no, we're not passing any immigration anything. No, not just this bill or not just it's not good enough for us. We need to negotiate it or you need to do better. How it was characterized by Jake Sherman, the sort of the ringleader of Punchbowl News up there on Capitol Hill was that Johnson said, 
Nothing can happen until Trump is president. Only Trump can do it. And the message here is clear. They want the issue. They don't want anything that improves the situation at all. Now, many Democrats would say what you're talking about isn't an improvement at all, but we're talking about in a political context. They want the issue. They don't want to pass anything. They want to keep what they claim is a is a is a is a crisis. Now, this is not surprising at a basic level. I don't think anybody can look at what we have seen over the last few years, look at what we have seen just in the last few weeks with these little, you know, barnstorming events they take down to the border. You know, you don't imagine Jim Jordan and Ted Cruz saying, it's terrible. Joe, just let us pass it. We'll give you the credit, man. we got to stop this crisis on the border. It's their issue. It's what their campaign is about. Of course, they want the issue. But generally speaking, parties have a, have a bit of a hard time quite going there of saying like, fuck it, let's keep the crisis. We're not, you know, sure you're willing to give us what we want, but we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to take it. You especially don't expect them to basically say, hey, we're not going to do anything. We want the issue. We want to wait for Trump. Let's, let's, we're going to wait till 2025. And I, I'm very curious to see, frankly, this is an opening for the Democrats to say, and, and really only Joe Biden can really say it, like, hey, we got to get something done about the border. And the Republicans are saying, no, we want to play politics. Now, is that going to make hardcore border militia freaks say, wow, guess Joe Biden's a guy who's going to get what I, well, of course not. But Joe Biden's not going to win the base of the Republican Party. But there are a number, particularly, frankly, not centrists. There are no centrists. Centrist is a meaningless term. Lots of people in the Democrat, most centrists are in the functionally Democrats at the point. What you're really talking about are people who are only loosely connected to the political process. Who, who aren't clearly Republicans or Democrats, and what, um, by definition, they're the people who are up, up for grabs in election, which always creates this kind of paradoxical, weird thing, because like you, you think, who should we give the call to? Let's, 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 let's kind of do this election on the basis of people who, who know nothing about politics and only vaguely form their political opinions by things their kids are watching on TikTok. But that's this is the world we live in, okay? Those people, the immigration thing has some traction for them. So this actually, this is an opportunity. And um, one of the big things in politics is, is you, need to, you need to have something to say, right? That when, when things fall apart on an issue is when the other one side can't even come up with something to say. And, you know, funny thing is, this is one of the things that Trump understood back in his term as president. You would think when the news is, wow, you were, you were, you were having these meetings with Vladimir Putin and his emissaries during the election. And you, you said, hey, Putin, can you help us? And they did help you. And there was money and all this stuff. And like what we're talking about is like, okay, did you do that or did you actually commit a crime? You would think that for most people, you'd say like, I, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? Well, they had, they came up with something to say. It's the deep state. 
It's fake news. I like Putin. <laughs> you need something to say. And for better or worse, the White House has not had really something to say about on, on the immigration front. And politically, that matters. So this is an opportunity. Um, very curious to see if they will they'll take it. And no, just one last thing I want to add is on the CR side of this equation, our listeners will remember that the kind of draconian punishments written into the debt ceiling agreement to try to prevent this constant kicking of the appropriations cans down the road, those kick in at the end of April. So it was always kind of expected that these CRs would run until then. I mean, like nominally, they say January is the end of the road, but really there's a four month grace period. And it's at the end of April when the cuts across the board will be enforced. And, you know, with a special kind of focus on the Department of Defense, um, you know, the one that that Republicans like. So we can probably like squiggle through with these kind of CRs for a time. And, and Johnson might be enough to might be able to do enough to kind of quiet the the muniness hard right. We might still be close enough to the McCarthy ouster that he can kind of hold them at bay. But we are barreling towards the time where they are going to have to do the actual legislating and and write actual appropriations bills and pass them through both chambers and get Biden's signature, you know, or have a shutdown. But we are we're coming towards that that action point. You know, that's close. So they're going to run out of CR road pretty soon. This is probably the last time they'll be able to kick it down the road before we see, um, you know, more more action around this these kind of omnipresent funding fights. And one point that we we when we were discussing this before we started recording is that the fact that they are doing this CR and what I just talked about about shooting down this immigration co compromise bill, those are not too you know, ships passing in the night, they're not unrelated things. They are probably directly coupled that for Johnson to be able to, you know, pass another CR, probably with mostly Democratic votes with, you know, the, the kind of the speaker killer, right? As uh, Kevin McCarthy found out, he probably needed to kill this immigration thing as the, as the, as the thing to get some, you know, to, to curry some favor, with with his with his caucus and to to be able to pass this CR, they're almost right. it's, it's you know almost certainly a a perhaps a a tacit quid pro quo, but one for the other because you need to if if you are in that hot seat of the speakership, you need to do you need to put something on the table to get a CR with Democratic votes, and at least so far, Johnson doesn't want it to be him. Right. that he's putting on the table. So there, you know, so there we are. Okay. All right. I think that's all we got for this week. Second episode of the year. We hope you are enjoying it and uh, we'll talk to you next week. All right. See you then. Later. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter, Kate Riga and TPM founder, editor in chief, Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. 